turn it to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we are at again this week. And like I said a few minutes ago, if you do not have a Bible or if you know someone that needs a Bible, we would love for you to take that home and give that to someone or uh, that you know specifically right now, maybe God's put on your heart who to talk to, and or if you need a Bible, we would love for you to use that. It's the same version that I'm using up front here, and uh, it makes it a little easier for you to follow along during the sermon. So that's why we do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time that we will have in your word right now. I pray that we will uh, focus in on who you are, how you are above all things, that you are matchless. And through who you are and the fact that you are matchless and there is no one, nothing like you, the guarantee of life that we have in you, that you have given us, that guarantee of life through Christ, is a matchless guarantee. And may we strive to remember that today as we spend time in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Isaiah 40, starting verse 12. As we get ready to walk through the verses there, through verse 26 today, I I want you to remember, and we've mentioned this quite a bit over the last few months and last few years even, there, there are really two idols that dominate our world. And people worship instead of God. And one idol, I would say, is a huge, enormous idol, And the other is smaller but growing in significance in our culture every single day. So the big idol is what I have mentioned many, many times as secular humanism. Secularism, others would call it a naturalism. It's a philosophy basically that makes man the measure of all things. I am the measure of all things passes through the filter of me. And that's what secular humanism is all about. Our social atmosphere that we live in reduces God then in that mindset to just a sentimental indulgence, if there's any place for him at all. And you see that more and more in how people talk. The other rival to God, the one that I said that was smaller but is growing in significance, is alternate spiritualities. And the reason that that is growing is because secular humanism leaves you unsatisfied. It leaves you empty. We shouldn't be surprised that pagan spirituality is resurfacing and growing in our culture and is seen as a serious option. And you may not even know that you're diving into that option because Satan, once again, has hidden that option as far as it being uh, something that's an idol uh, in our culture because it's just seen as normal to go out and practice yoga 
It's, it's seen as normal to go and, and get crystals and power sources and salt stands and all of that stuff. And so many people have no idea that all of those things are based in pagan spirituality. And some of you today may be going, oh, great, now i got to go throw away something <laughs> or, or whatever. But some of you may be going, hey, I've never heard this before. Yoga, different things like that. This is part of spiritualism that's not compatible with Christianity. And the answer is yes. So if that's something that's new to you, come talk to me. Come talk to us and we'll, we'll explain where that came from and what that is all about and why it's bad and why it's not, once again, compatible with Christianity, why it's an alternate idol, why it's a growing idol in our culture. So secularism and this paganism are growing. And despite the obvious differences, because secular humanism at its base is you don't need God, it's just you. But like I said, once again, in our culture, people are walking around totally void of life. And you can see it in people's eyes, can't you? Can't you just see people walking around just totally empty? It's like robots. And the thing is, is that that's what humanism produces. An emptiness. And so people fill it with all types of weird stuff. Both of those things are allied against God. So they actually are similar. They're allied against God who loves everyone, even those that are following pagan spirituality. He loves those who are technically just a rationalist. He loves those people. And he's inviting them, and he's invited us into his glorious kingdom for all our sinners in need of a Savior. He died for all, only some will be his. We get that. But the call is for us to share his gospel with how many people? All. The door stands open to both people that are mired in secular humanism and those who are following alternate faiths. Because they're not really an alternate faith at all as you read this section of Scripture. The door stands open. And the open display of the glory of God will be an adjustment for them. When they, all of a sudden, they look at, instead of a spiritual bogus path, and maybe this is you, and you look to God, the display of the glory of God, when you understand that when the scales fall off your eyes, like Saul, or as we know him, Paul, when the scales fall off those eyes, even before that for Saul, what did, what did he say? My, my Lord 
It was the first response to Jesus when he heard, just heard the, the majestic voice of God. And that display of glory will be an adjustment. And one of the things that I think is very important and I think has happened in churches and our culture, our Christian culture, specifically here in the United States today, and probably in parts of Europe as well, is that people that are pastors or theological leaders don't give the glory of God enough oomph. Don't share the glory of God enough. As one pastor said, that there really seems like, at, at times in our culture, that God is weightless. And he argues about the weightlessness of God. And really, that's the opposite of his glory. If God makes very little impact in your life, if our church doesn't feel a heavy, incredible presence of the glory of God in who he is working through our lives, is God actually being glorified in us? If we're just going through the motions. We need to start over again, some of us. Some of us need to recalibrate and rediscover God. Some of us need to be adjusting all the time. Because the world beats us up with a sucker punch every single day. The adjustments are more than worth it because His glory is all about our joy in him and many many Christians never know what it's like for God to dwell in them because they're not really believers so with God helping me and boy I need his help I want to talk about the matchlessness of God I want to talk about how all of us should be living in a way that people see and sense that God is incredible. The beauty of God's presence in your life, the Holy Spirit working in you. And I, I remembered Paul mentioning something about that in Ephesians chapter 6 praying that, that the Spirit would be working in him and give him the words to share, to describe God. And we're in a section of Scripture where Isaiah decides to show us more of God. I looked at it this way when I was thinking of this this week. A few weeks back, we... Jenny and I went to Yosemite, and when you go to Yosemite, you, you first hit the valley, right before you hit the valley floor, there's an outlook that basically sees from, from one end to the other to, to where Half Dome is, if you've ever been there. And that outlook is absolutely breathtaking when it's not filled with smoke. But 
you look at that, and, and quite honestly for me, I look at that and I see God's creation displayed before me. I see a creation that is uh, absolutely incredible, and it kind of, in me, it starts me start singing things like, how great thou art, because I see the incredible creative power of God. But that is not what we're talking about here. That's just kind of like baby steps. I need to be looking at, wow, what has God done through these three people that Alan spoke about this morning? I need to be looking out at our congregation that's here today and looking specifically at people's faces and going, that is God glorified through their lives because of what he has done in them. And that blows me away way more than Yosemite Valley. We need more than seeing God through our own eyes, though. Isaiah shows us in this section of Scripture, God through God's eyes. Aha! This may be different. If we see God through our own eyes, it will be diminished. But if we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else. Isaiah understands that, and in this passage, he shows us the whole universe through God's eyes. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, God promised to come to us to make his glory the unavoidable center of everything in this world. And in verses, 20, verses 12 through 26 here, God anticipates our objection to that because it's kind of like, hey, you make a promise, that's one thing. Keeping it is all of another, another thing. How many of you have ever, have ever been a part of something like that where you're like, yeah, go ahead, make that promise. Yeah, good job. They were showing a promise that was made a few months ago by Dodgers manager Dave Roberts who said, and I quote, we will win the World Series this year, unquote. Does anyone realize what happened last night? They're, they lost, and they didn't just lose a game. They lost the series. They are done. Yay! Anyway, not a Dodgers fan. But making a promise is one thing. Keeping it is another. And in our walk with God, there are those questions that happen. Can, can God really do this? Can God overcome the obstacles in, in my family today? Can God overcome the obstacles in our world today? Can God handle any and, and all the opposition the human race throws at him? And when God promises a massive, a massive reordering of human society around his glory, can we really believe that with an audacious full-blown faith 
And Isaiah's answer echoes the word of the psalmist in Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not some. All that he pleases. And the structure of this passage that we will be looking at in just the next 15-20 minutes here focuses on the one and only God transcending all his rivals. God is able to keep every promise he has given us because he is the creator. He is the Lord of history. He alone is God. Verse 12, starting off with the idea that God is the wise creator, Isaiah says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? The waters of all the oceans, lakes, rivers, held in the palm of his hand like a pool of water. The heavens marked off by the, by the span between God's outreached thumb and his pinky, and somewhere in there is the earth. The mountains and the hills measured by his little dinky scale. It's a postage stamp scale. Isaiah takes in the whole of creation at a glance and asks, really in essence, who else but God can weigh this, measure this, determine it with the precision and ease that God does that? To us, that's massive. It doesn't make any sense. It's so big to God, it's like, uh, I got this. And that's what we see starting in verse 13 then. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. When God created everything, he needed nothing. Right? All the ideas, all the genius of his creation is his and his alone. God imagined every tropical fish. Now, I was in Hawaii a few weeks ago visiting our daughter. And it's tough to have family that lives there. But anyway, and you're snorkeling and you're looking at these fish. And it, it's true. You sit there and you go, God designed that. that. That trumpet fish, which is one of the weirdest looking things on the face of the planet, it looks like it's lips or a trumpet bell and, and you go okay, okay God's got a sense of humor especially that that poor guy <laughs> but the beauty of the colors and and all of that and how it works together it's incredible God established every function of gravity even when we don't like it as we get older 
He shapes galaxies, spiral, elliptical, irregular. He came up with all of it by himself, alone, out of his own superintelligence. And of course, we've got, we understand the Trinity involved here. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. But the, the point here is this. In the Babylon region, the creator god, Marduk, had to consult with Ea, the, the all-wise. And what that meant is that the pagan gods worked by committee. And what Isaiah is saying here to them, to the people at that time, God the creator needs no one else, including you and me. Jump over into the New Testament, Romans eleven thirty four. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? This is borrowed here. Colossians 2, 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? It's in God, in God alone. And so we need to understand in that first few verses that Isaiah is letting us know that God is the wise creator. What is our world trying to do today to us? To convince us that God is not the wise creator. And if you can be convinced that God is not the wise creator, and you can be convinced that God maybe created everything to start with, but then isn't involved in anything anymore, Satan's won. Satan wins the battle every time on that. And Isaiah is saying, he, he alone is the creator. And he moves into pushing down then into how this operates in our world once again. In, in verse 15, this immense God, our Lord and Savior, he is Lord over all the nations. Look at verse 15 with me. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. If you ever wondered where the phrase drop in the bucket came from, Bible. And it, it's, it's, if you're carrying a bucket of water across your backyard, and I know in Los Angeles that's illegal right now because we're in a drought. <laughs> but if you're carried, I know, it's, everything's just so silly anymore. Anyway, if you're, if you're carrying that, that bucket across the backyard and you jostle it and a drop sloshes out, rolls down the side of the bucket, falls on the ground, do you go back and refill the bucket? No, it's a drop. One drop doesn't matter. And so it is with God's deployment of the nations in his plan for history. He doesn't despise the nations. He loves them. They are not worthless. Don't hear me wrong on that. But they derive their worth from him alone. But nations, sadly, today are blind to God's glory and in this, this day as well, pursue their own self-exaltation, resist his kingdom, 
But we have to remember that that isn't a problem for God. That isn't something that God has to work around. As God governs this world, He has no problems. And we see the continuation of that thought then in verse 16. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. If you have no idea about Lebanon, this makes no sense, but they understood this. Isaiah moves from nations in general, and that's a moving target in our world. I think right now there's about 208 nations. Isaiah moves from nations to one in one sentence. That's zeroing in pretty good. Lebanon was famous for forests, cedar forests specifically. And basically, he's saying, what if you could cut down all those trees, collect all the timber in one massive pile, and then top it off with the bodies of all of Lebanon's animals as a burnt offering to God? Would that be enough? Would it be worthy of God? And Isaiah is like, nope, not at all. It's, it's not even close. Not even close. And then that kind of puts in perspective when we start thinking too much of ourselves. I mean, I, I, have, I have seen people who, who, in their attempt to worship God, have decided that they alone are the ones that are worshiping God and getting it right. And we have to remember, I, I love classical music. We had a long drive this week, Jenny and I, and well, I was probably listening to classical music the whole way. I, I just love it. And you know, when Bach comes on, I stand up or drive a little taller. <laughs> you know, handle oh, way taller than because that guy's super, you know, it's awesome. Just stuff like that. But I have to remember that Bach playing his piano is like chopsticks to God. We, we have to remember, don't let the greatness of God, the greatness of God that we worship slip in our thinking that the greatness of our worship of God. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he prayed, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And this whole idea here is that there's only, and this is key, everyone, because so many people get, you know, stuck on this. Should we worship God? Yes. Are we called to worship God? Yes. Is my worship of God enough to sanctify me? No. To justify me? Definitely not. There's only one sacrifice worthy of God. And it was offered on a cross by Christ everything else pales in comparison and that's why then in verse 17 all the nations are as nothing before him they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless so Isaiah is moving back and forth he's he's definitely taking a bat to the nations. He's also taking a bat to us as individuals and say, don't think of yourself too much. 
in this. You, you, you are not what makes you holy. Right? That's what comes up here. You are not what makes you holy. It's God. It's God being put inside of you through the, through the sacrifice of Christ. And Isaiah, Isaiah in verse 17 shifts back from a, a particular nation to all the nations. And his point is that when God created man, he didn't dig his own grave. He didn't create an unforeseen difficulty. All human opposition is to God is really just a, a reaction to sin. And when we begin to see God through our eyes, which is our natural state, it's all messed up. But when we begin to see God through God's eyes, we see the promises of God as more real, more weighty, more solid than anything else in all of our life. And that is thrilling when we get the immensity of who he is and who we're not. I always have to stop and pause there because there's always people that are just, they're walking in wounded. And I'm thankful you're here. And I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that you don't matter. Actually, if you think it's all about you doing more, doing more, doing more, and trying to get closer to God, you'll, you'll fail in that. And that's what I'm trying to stop you from doing and remembering it's God who is in charge. Let God work through you. Let the Spirit of the Lord be in you and work through you and change your life, reorder your life to be His and His alone. When you are walking into wherever you work and you feel beat up and blown up in any other B word that we can think of right now, Remember, you are his. And though you are a small speck of dust, he sent his son to die for you. And that changes everything. Because this immense Lord of all the nations cares enough for you and you alone. And according to scripture, calls you. Calls you personally. To be his. Knows you. That's pretty wild. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. And he's going on and he's saying, this is, this is, you need to understand that this is God and this is, he is alone God. He is, he's it. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Oh, this, this is fun. Or what likeness will you compare him with? See, Isaiah is a wise pastor. He knows really a very urgent need in us. He knows that the human heart is driven by this desire to make God controllable. By reducing God to our own categories. And that is why Isaiah is letting us know, and obviously this is, this is inspired, this is the Holy Spirit talking through Isaiah. So this is God letting us know that, 
God is unique. The Bible describes God with comparisons from within creation. We see that. We see him as a, a lion, a fountain, a tower, a husband, a father, a soldier, and so forth. But verse 18 here reminds us that the analogies within creation fall short. That they are limited attempts to get us to understand this. When we see God, though, through God's eyes, he doesn't fit into any of the boxes that we create. He goes beyond our categories and therefore deserves our trust. And you have to be careful with that in this world because I can say that and then people say, oh, so then you can pick whatever religion you want because that is outside of that box. No, because God said, as Alan shared earlier in John 14, 6, I, singular, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. That's Jesus saying, I am the only sacrifice, which we've mentioned there. God is God alone. God provides the sacrifice alone. And that's why we, as we venture further into this, in 19, as for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering, selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. What's, what's interesting about these two verses is Isaiah doesn't really criticize idol making. He's just describing it. But if you look at it closely, he might as well be writing a caption for a photograph of idol manufacturing. He's just describing it. That's all he has to do. Because when you really think about how people create idols in their life and all of that, idol making is too dumb to require more comment. He just has to share it. His serious tones and observations are dripping with the reality of this is dumb. They may be decked out, may be impressive, might even inspire awe and mystery, but they are what they are. Psalm 115, starting in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, their work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. So the writer of Psalm 115 decided to describe it a little bit more. And that's why we must never derive our sense of worth from anything within creation. It will rot. That's why we must delight that God alone is God. He is incomparable to any other thing, and He alone is our salvation, which means our salvation is not comparable to anything else on this planet. And that should make us walk a little taller. 
Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Who is the God who has redeemed us? It is that God. And if that God has redeemed someone like me who is a sinner, then I need to stand a little taller and fight a little harder for God's word. Because he's the one that gives me worth. But Isaiah's not done yet. He's, he's letting us know all about God, right? And so he, he goes on with verses 21 through 24 with God is the active Lord over the world leaders. And I wish our world leaders would read this. Some do. And you can tell the difference in those leaders that do. Isn't that right? And if you can't figure that out, talk to me later and I'll give you some examples of some that actually do do you not know and this this verse is very well known do you not know do you not hear has it not been told to you from the beginning have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that's where we start with this Isaiah argues with us because we, what we know to be true doesn't always make an impact on us. But it helps when we stop seeing the glory of God through our own eyes and begin to see him through his own eyes. And the difference it makes as we look out on all of the different realities that are out there, all of the political realities, all of the social realities of our world today, it changes then how we react to them and what we think about them. Does that make sense? Because I am reordering my life to his word and his ways and his quote-unquote policies, which are perfect. And that's why as it goes on and says this in verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He, it is, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. And in... If you are a student of history, you see over and over again how tyrants fall. How those that do not follow God's ways always, as I said last week, always seem to start overplaying their hand. And they eventually get blown away. If, if they don't turn to Christ, it's dust in the wind time. You see, we have to understand that God is at work in the world today, and sometimes it doesn't seem like it. When you have something like Proposition 1 that is here in California, that is the most awful thing on the face of the planet to be voting for, to legalize in our state constitution abortion, Yeah, it's like you go, God, are you at work today? And the answer is, yes, he is. 
sense, I see churches all over the place finally getting some guts and standing up and saying, that's stupid. That's wrong. And you know what? There's a very high likelihood that that will pass. But that doesn't change the fact that God is God. And it doesn't change the fact that those who promote those things need to read this section of Scripture. Because it does not end well when you go against God and His Word. And even if I am, as a Christian, the super minority of belief in everything, I stand tall in God. Because it is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Not some governor. Not some politician or whatever, right? Just name it. God is at work in the world today. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things and in Him all things are held together. It is He who raises up leaders, brings them down again according to His own purposes and for His own glory. Daniel 2.21, who had to live through some really bad leaders... It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. The power brokers that seem so formidable before us with their monumental egos and ambitions, what does it say? What are they like to God? Little seedlings, scattered plants, go to the desert, these plants grow up out in the desert here, they grow up when there's rain and they get a little nourishment or whatever, but by the time July and August rolls around, they're tumbleweeds. And you know what happens when a tumbleweed hits your car? They're nothing. And that's the picture we need to kind of see in that. God blows on them. Zero effort on his part. It's a mere puff of air. And that's why God alone is God. And I'm going to live for him. And, and once again, Isaiah doesn't just leave us there. He's like, God alone is God, and God then is the watchful creator. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? We can love the holiness of God because his holiness means he's in a category all of his own. We need someone who is not like us. Amen? I need someone who is not like me to be the savior of me. We need someone who is not like us. Only a holy, incomparable God can save us. And so Isaiah drives the point home with one final question. Lift your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth the 
their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. All right, I know we've got some rocket scientists in here today, so if I get these numbers wrong, that's okay. Have some grace. I'm a pastor, which means that I get things wrong on the science side with these things, but maybe not. Go outside on a clear night. Jenny and I have been talking about going out to the desert uh, where they have these areas that are uh, no light areas so you can actually see the stars compared to here. Go out there and look up. Don't take it for granted. Think about who created those stars is what Isaiah is saying. There is a God in heaven who brings them out every night one by one. That's what Isaiah is saying. He calls each by name. That's what Isaiah is saying. This vast universe we live in is sustained moment by moment by the greatness of God and God alone. And nothing, not the smallest star, falls through the cracks. And this is interesting. The Babylonians were astrologers. Some astrologers came looking for Jesus because they were taught some of God's word that made them look to the heavens for a sign. And that's why Isaiah concludes by directing our eyes to the stars. The heavenly bodies that the Babylonians actually worshipped are in fact a display of God's glory, which is so important to understand. The constellations the Babylonians believed were controlling the destinies of man are actually controlled by God. We today, with a scientific outlook, should be even more awestruck. The closest star to us is the sun, of course. Sun generates energy with the same explosiveness of a, as a hydrogen bomb, just a little bit more. The surface of the sun, as I read this week, is relatively cool. It's 10,000 degrees on the surface. You get a little underneath that, and it's about 27 million degrees. The diameter of the sun is 870,000 miles. It's 109 times larger than the earth. Its volume could contain 1 million earths. Its brightness is equal to 4 million trillion 100 watt light bulbs. That is more than Home Depot has. <laughs> and the sun is just an average star. Solar system inside the Milky Way. If you ever get out where it's really dark and you see the Milky Way, you start going, man, what is in that? A lot more stars. We lie about two-thirds of the way out of the center of the galaxy we're in. We're kind of in the boondocks. Milky Way is 104 thousand light years across containing over 100 billion stars and the last time anyone started to think about counting them it, they figured out it would probably mathematically I don't know how you mathematically figure out how long it would take to count stars one two I mean time that okay whatever to count them one by one would take us over 3,000 years 
the ones that we can see. And according to the latest probes of the James Webb Space Telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. And the pictures are pretty cool. And I say all of that for this reason. God wants us to see something about himself. The God who brings out the glory of the universe every night, who calls the stars by name, calls you by name. And not one of his kids is missing. God has made a promise to us and he has promised us himself in all of his glory. Do you think that type of God deserves your confidence? Do you think this God who manages the universe right down to the faintest star will ever lose track of you? And that is why this section of scripture in Isaiah today speaks to people whose mood is like that of many of us in our world today. You're looking at things through your own eyes. Stop it. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's like, stop it, Scott. Stop it. The promises of God do not put a spring in your step if they're seen through your eyes. The promises of God put a spring in your step if you see it through his eyes. God is inviting us to turn our perceptions around and see everything from his point of view. He understands that the struggle of faith is won or lost in the way we perceive him. When you feel threatened by world events, overwhelmed by problems, when the job stinks, the family is equally stinky, there's actually another way to perceive all of this. God is opening you up to a prophetic vision, and the biblical gospel is his way of calling us, behold your God. Bow your knee to him. Give your life to him. Reorder your life in his ways. Will you repent of the sin of diminishing God in your thoughts? It's actually a hidden idolatry, diminishing God. Tozer says it this way, Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration, and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Dethrone your idols. Dethrone your idols and rediscover God. Look at God. And when you do, everything else Everything else, when you look through his eyes, through Christ, who gives us strength, who gives us everything, when you look at him through his eyes and then look at your life through his eyes, 
it reorders everything for you. 